Welcome to the Power Hour. I'm Adrienne Herbert, wellness coach, international speaker and author. Each week I speak to a variety of guests from business founders to Olympic athletes, leading coaches, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, their rules to live by and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day. Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire. So I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. Welcome to this week's special episode of Power Hour, sponsored by Eon Next, on a mission to tackle eco-anxiety by encouraging people to power up for change. As you all know, this podcast and my personal mission is to encourage and inspire you to take action in your own lives. Now, when we talk about goal setting, mastering your mindset, creating impact, I really hope that each episode every single week will provide you not only with a boost of motivation, but also with some real life practical tools and takeaways. Now, one thing that can get in the way, whether we're trying to take action, be more productive or simply just take a moment to enjoy life is anxiety. And today we're going to be talking about a specific type of anxiety, and that's eco-anxiety. So we've got a great guest, absolutely brilliant guest to come and talk us through this, and that is Caroline Hickman. Caroline is a lecturer in social work and climate psychology at the University of Bath, Caroline's work spans far and wide, but one of her specialisms, which we'll be discussing today, is in eco-anxiety and how it manifests in young people globally. Caroline's advice is all her own. It's not from Eon Next directly. However, they have been kind enough to put us in touch for today's conversation. So first of all, what is eco-anxiety? Well, as the name suggests, eco-anxiety is a chronic fear of environmental doom. That sense of frustration and hopelessness that we experience when it feels like we're going to be totally unable to help stop or prevent climate change. It's been on the rise in recent years and is especially prevalent in young people, with many young people having totally reasonable concerns about the impacts of a changing climate and what that might look like. It's worth pointing out, of course, that anxiety about the future of the planet is totally valid. It's vital in many instances. However, problems arise when it becomes debilitating and when it leaves us feeling paralysed. This is especially problematic if it makes us feel like there's nothing that we can do. However, that is not the case. For example, Eon Neck's own Exploring Eco-Anxiety in Gen Z report gave me this little bit of info that 20% of CO2 comes from home energy. So we can even start in our own home and potentially have a very meaningful impact. So you see, researchers have found that eco-anxiety predicts lower collective action. So what does that mean? Essentially, it's because it can cause us to feel so stressed and can cause so much worry that we essentially just surrender and then we're unable to act, we're unable to make change and unable to get involved with climate action. Now, anecdotally, I have my son who's 11, my stepdaughter who's only eight, and on separate occasions, they have asked me questions about the climate crisis. They know and think a lot about the future of the planet's health for humans, for animals, for food production. And as I said, they're only 11 and eight years old. They're so aware of this conversation. And for young people, it can be quite overwhelming. 
I've also got friends who are my age, mid thirties, and I've heard them discussing whether or not, you know, big decisions, big life decisions, like whether or not to have children. And I believe that their own eco-anxiety plays a part in that decision. So this really is a topic that is, is impactful for so many people at so many ages and so many stages throughout their life. So as I mentioned, to talk to us today about eco-anxiety, Eon Next have connected me with the brilliant Caroline Hickman. Caroline is an academic specialising in social work and climate psychology, and she works with schools and youth activist groups, offering talks and workshops about the climate and ecological crisis. So Caroline joins me today to talk about exactly what eco-anxiety is and how we can address it. And one more thing before we dive into today's conversation. If you scroll down in your podcast feed, you'll see a mindfulness meditation. So Eon Next have created a brand new podcast feed made up of audio tools that you can use next time you feel your eco-anxiety mounting. And we're giving you one today alongside this bonus episode. There's a range of calming and meditative resources, all designed for you to use whenever you feel the need to step back and calm your growing anxiety. So for more of these resources, just search Power Up for Change in your podcast app. Okay, let's get into it. Welcome to the podcast, Caroline. How are you? Hi, I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you. I'm so interested to get into this conversation with you today, Caroline. I have so many questions, so many thoughts, and it's yeah. actually a topic that we haven't discussed really at all yet on the podcast. So. Okay. I think the best place to start, because I said so much to talk about, I think the best place to start would be if you could define for us, please, Caroline, what is eco-anxiety and what are the signs of eco-anxiety? Yeah, thank you. Well, you gave a good introduction to it, which talks about eco-anxiety as being a emotionally and mentally healthy response when we look at what's going on in the world around us. We measure mental health by looking at our capacity to respond to external reality. And if we look at the reality of what's happening in the world, glaciers are melting, ice is melting, countries are flooding. I just saw in the news, clifftop homes are being destroyed, sea levels are rising, there's increased heat. How could we not be anxious when we look at that? And it's not just things happening close to home, it's happening all over the world. So it's an emotionally, mentally healthy response. But it's not just what we see happening to the world. It's also how we see other people reacting to this. So you've described beautifully how your children and your friends are concerned, but you probably also have the experience of talking with people who don't seem to be concerned and say things to you like, oh, don't worry, it'll be all right. You know, technology will save us. What that does is it makes us more anxious because actually we've had the technology for decades and failed to act sufficiently swiftly to stop the increase of this. So eco-anxiety is both environmental concern and a fear that people are not taking it seriously enough or acting swiftly enough and therefore it's a relational problem as well. And you see the conflict around the world of do we take care of economic development or do we save the planet? Do we take care of farming or do we rewild? It leads to endless conflict between people and the growth and economic development and the needs of the planet to survive. Do you see what I mean? So that dilemma, that conflict creates even more anxiety. 
Young people during COVID, for example, said to me over and over again, if we can act this way over COVID, why can't we act more swiftly around the climate crisis? Because we acted very swiftly to lock down and take action around COVID. So there is a generational difference, which is frequently, and I know it's a generalization, but frequently older, older generations are less concerned and younger generations are much more concerned. But then you can have the conflict between the generations where the older generations don't understand how children and young people feel about this. And then people are left feeling misunderstood. So it's very complicated and it's not just anxiety about what's happening in the climate, what's happening in the world. It's also what's happening between us and between generations and between countries. So we've got statistics like 48% in the research that we conducted last year with 10,000 children and young people, 48% of children and young people told us they were dismissed or ignored when they tried to talk about climate change. I mean, I think that's a good illustration of where we can't actually immediately do something about the climate crisis, but we can do something about the way we talk to each other about it. And that in turn reduces the anxiety. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and I was actually nodding, nodding along when you said about oh, how different it's a, such a complex thing and how different people respond, because I certainly know people that almost yeah. two, two things, they either kind of laugh and mock people that talk about climate crisis, or yeah. they kind of have this approach that says, you know what, I'm just one person and I can't make a change. So as you described, big tech will save us or the government will save us or somebody else will have to do it because as one individual, surely I can't make a difference anyway, so I'm just going to forget about it. And it's definitely um, yeah, a complex web of how people respond to this conversation. It is. And right. First thing we have to remember is that as far as I'm concerned, everyone on the planet is struggling with eco-anxiety. Now, not everybody's going to like hearing me say that, but I don't care. <laughs> I'm going to keep saying it. I think everybody has got some climate anxiety, but for some people it's really dominant and it's really strong. For some people it may be quite mild and for other people it's out of awareness so they're not even aware, they're not even thinking about it. Now you can understand that for some people, maybe you're struggling to put food on the table, you're struggling with the cost of living crisis, you're worried about losing your job, you're arguing with your partner, you're looking after your children. You've already got enough on your plate, you're juggling lots of things. So taking on the climate and planetary crisis might feel a step too far. But if we accept the idea that everybody's got some anxiety, then that would help us understand each other's different positions around this. Because what we absolutely crucially need is empathy and understanding of each other. Uh, the other thing to really say about this is all of that mocking or joking or dismissal or disavowal or even denial that you're talking about, displacing it, saying, oh, I'm just one person, all of that is ways of dealing with that anxiety. So that comes mm -hmm. back to my argument that actually everybody's anxious, but we might be expressing it in different ways. So for mm -hmm. some people, that anxiety is going to dominate your everyday life. For other people, they can dismiss it or they can be quickly reassured. Lots of people really trust technology or trust governments or trust people in authority who say, oh, don't worry, we'll sort it out. 
But other people are a little more cynical or a little bit more critical in their thinking and have felt let down in the past and are thinking, well, if you've not dealt with it by now, why aren't you dealing with it today? How can I trust you? So there is a breakdown of trust, I think, when it comes to looking to people in authority, whether that's faith leaders or teachers or governments. There is increasingly a sense of, but can we trust you? And do you have our best interests at heart? collectively and I think that's where children and young people have less faith in Mm. older generations but also people in power who seem to frequently be you know if you look at the kind of statistics that have come out recently about the huge profits being made versus the cost of living crisis it's really hard to wrap your head around that and understand what that means for the ordinary person now without getting into the politics of that because I know that's controversial if we bring this back to but I'm just one person there's a false binary that happens psychologically psychologically what happens is people go to one extreme or the other they go to a catastrophic way of thinking oh we're all doomed we're all going to die next week it's hopeless what's the point let's just give up that's one end of the spectrum At the other end of the spectrum, people can have a naive optimism and say, oh, it's fine, you know, we've dealt with things like this before, we can deal with this. Do you see what I mean? These Mm, are weirdly, paradoxically, the same solution at opposite ends of the spectrum. This is the human ego. The human ego likes to feel in control, likes to feel that it has quick and easy solutions and likes Mm. to shut down anxiety and uncertainty. The truth is, neither catastrophic thinking nor naive optimism is realistic. The reality sits in the middle, which is this is a multifaceted, global, planetary, intergenerational, complex systemic problem, which needs systemic solutions. We can't just tackle this by doing one thing over here and ignore the rest over there. So we need to find a way to stretch our imaginations and stretch our approaches to this so that we're doing both individual and personal action at the same time as social, at the same time as collective and community, at the same time as planetary action. And we've never had to do this before. We've always been able to psychologically deal with things locally, except when we're looking at kind of planetary conflict. This requires us to do both at the same time. Timothy Morton, the philosopher, talks about climate change and the climate crisis as a hyper object, which means it's really difficult to see all at once. And if we can't see it or we can't sense it or we can't feel it, then we can't understand it. And then it's overwhelming and then it's too big. And then we go, oh, it's too much for me. And we kind of collapse. It makes sense. Yeah, it's interesting that when you describe those two, I suppose, ends of the spectrum, the the shared thing is this feeling of doing nothing. Because either the feeling is doing nothing, as you said, hopelessness, or the feeling of doing nothing through optimism. And so, yeah, I found that really interesting. But I think the, the part in the middle, as you said, I'd love to know for those people who maybe say yes, Eco-anxiety is something that definitely resonates with me. I feel overwhelmed. I feel maybe paralyzed to take action because I don't know where to start. What advice do you give to those people? First thing I would say is the Western medical model, how we frame mental health, isn't always that helpful to us here. The Western medical model treats anxiety and 
depression traditionally as if it was something to be got rid of. Oh, you've got anxiety, you've got depression, let's get rid of those symptoms and then you can be normal again. We need the opposite approach with eco-anxiety. We need to say, you're feeling eco-anxiety, you're feeling depression, you're feeling despair. I want to reframe that, not get rid of it. I want to reframe it and say, you're only feeling these things because you care. So actually, you should feel proud that you care. You shouldn't try to get rid of that anxiety. You should feel good about having that anxiety because it shows you care about the planet. You care about the future of the planet for children and for young people and ourselves and for animals. You're invested in the future. That investment you should feel proud of. So I reframe it positively. That's yeah. number one. Number two, you then have to take into account people's suffering. So you can't just speak positively about it and then leave people suffering and say, well, that's all very well, but it's really uncomfortable. I say, well, yeah, sure. So first of all, we're going to reframe it and say, feel proud that you care. And then secondly, how do you navigate this? Because you can't get rid of it. It's a bit like the Michael Rosen story. You've got children. So you know the story of the bear hunt. Yes, I know it very yeah. well. I'm sure you do. So I use that as a metaphor for how we can tackle our eco-anxiety. It's a brilliant story. So the family goes off on a big adventure. They go on a bear hunt. And they meet all these obstacles. They meet rivers. They meet grass. They meet mud. And each time they meet an obstacle, they say, uh-uh, we can't get under it. We can't get over it. We can't get around it. We're going to have to go through it. So the thing about eco-anxiety is we have to find a way through it. We can't get away from it. We can't suppress it. We can't deny it. It's only going to come back if, with a vengeance if we try to, because it's part of our everyday reality. We have to find ways to be okay with not being okay with eco-anxiety, because it's part of our landscape now. We have to accept that we're halfway through the story of climate change. We're not at the beginning of the story. We're not at the end of the story, but we are halfway through the story. And the more we can wake up to the reality that we're facing, the more we will take action. The more we will take action, the less anxiety we will feel. So this is an approach which talks about radical hope, not naive hope or hopelessness, but radical hope. And radical hope is a way of navigating this. So we say, well, this is part of our life. I don't like it. I wish it wasn't here, but I need to find a way to accept that it's here and navigate it rather than run away from it or just think I've got to fight it all the time, which quickly leads to burnout. So you have to find a way to navigate it. And it's a bit like learning to surf where you fall off half the time. It's a bit like learning to, you have to sometimes be on top of the waves. Sometimes you'll be slightly under the waves, slightly, sometimes you'll be thinking, oh, I can't cope with this. All of those emotional responses make perfect sense. And you have to give yourself permission to feel this whole range of emotions. Mm. A friend of mine who's an ecologist laughs at me. I talk about this as an emotional biodiversity. She says it's not quite right, but I don't care because I think it's a way of describing it, <laughs> which is like, you know, it's okay to be depressed. It's okay to be anxious. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to feel overwhelmed. Just not all on the same Monday afternoon. <laughs> so you're going to feel these feelings one after another after another and accept them as part of your everyday narrative of what it means 
to live in this unique and unprecedented time in human history. Mm. Like I said, we might not love it, but we do have to find a way to be okay with it. So this is about building two forms of resilience. It means building internal resilience and external resilience. We can go out and take external action. We can do our recycling. We can plant good crops. We can do rewilding. We can take care of our garden. We can take care of growing vegetables. We can teach ourselves and our children about how to take care of the planet. Great external action. But we also have to do internal action. We also have to learn to mindfully, emotionally navigate this and tolerate some of these ups and downs. One of the biggest problems we have with these emotions is that we start to quickly tell ourselves, oh, I shouldn't feel this. Yes. Oh, I'm depressed. And then we start to say, oh, I'm depressed about being depressed or I'm anxious about being anxious. And then we start to pile on and say, you're stupid because you're depressed. What's wrong with you? This is pathetic. Get up, get out there. So we start to really attack ourselves and bring ourselves down and don't allow ourselves to have this range of emotional responses. Mm. And it's that that hurts us. It's the feelings about the feelings. This is the yeah. most difficult thing to deal with. So we need the internal and external, but we also need some tolerance of this range of emotions. Oh yeah, absolutely. This this idea that you're talking around tolerance and also feeling the emotion. I love that you said, you know, it's okay to feel anxious. It's okay to feel down, depressed, stressed. These are real, you know, this it, the reality of, of what we're experiencing warrants that. I love yeah. that you said that because often, yeah, I do think people kind of try to diminish it. Um, and I think it's really important to just not try and say, come on, move on, be positive, forget about it. I think that was really powerful for me actually hearing that. And, and again, thinking Good. about the conversation that you have with young people and with children also mm. not saying that to them because I think something that comes up probably for, for children young people but also for everyone else in this conversation is a feeling of guilt and I think guilt comes in a lot so anecdotally again thinking about experiences that I've had with with the children when they talk about maybe food choices maybe they want to talk about vegetarian or veganism and talking about the impact of of their diet choices and people saying well on the one hand I'm being told you know eat these things they're good for you on the other hand I'm being told this is really bad for the planet and the climate and and I see that like as I say in very young people this this feeling of guilt around their actions and the inactions so yeah where does where does guilt play a part and also with all the things that we that you've taken us through there with the internal and external and how we take action how do we approach this in a consistent way because we might listen to this episode today listen to all the wonderful advice that you have and think okay great this is going to and then over time you know those things slip back and we feel the same way again so is there something in there around how we can consistently take care of our our mindset around this but also take action at the same time first thing i'm going to tell you is good luck being consistent because you're a human being and humans are never consistent we can only stay still with a consistency and a stability and a security for about four seconds every other Tuesday. Um, most of the time we're navigating between being slightly out of balance, out of kilter, and the moment we realize that we can get back in balance and then we lose it again and then we get back in again. And that's okay. 
I think we forget that we're human beings and we think we should be robots and be consistent, right? Um, so that's number one. I think it's human nature. And we need to be more tolerant and kind and compassionate to ourselves about being imperfect. We are perfectly imperfect. This is the nature of what it means to be human and navigate something which is daunting and scary and difficult and genuinely unprecedented. I know we use that word a lot in the world, but this one really is unprecedented. So when humans try to locate themselves and reassure themselves about how to deal with this, we look at how we've dealt with previous crises like world wars or famine or you know nuclear threat. The problem is, is the climate crisis is genuinely threatening on a planetary scale and nothing up until this point in human history has threatened on a completely planetary scale. So we do not have the neurological connections in our brain. We do not really know how to deal with this, but we can learn. So we have to have the humility, the hubris, the humour, the willingness to collectively learn how to navigate this. I've been studying this for 10 years and I'm still learning. And I'm learning all the time from the people I work with in psychotherapy and the young activists that I work with and the young people in schools. So crucially, I listen to them, I listen to how they feel about it. And then I add that to my understanding. A young 10 year old got really cross with me a few years ago and he said, Caroline, you don't get this. He said, for you, you thought polar bears would be there forever and you're learning that they are going extinct. He said, I've grown up knowing they will go extinct. And he's right. Wow. So I had to really wrap my head around what it was like for him as a 10 year old. Now, I don't want to feel that. I don't want to think that. I don't want to imagine what that's like for him, but I have to. And that's my duty of care. And so this comes back to the question that you asked me about five years ago, which was guilt, right? <laughs> so guilt is a really important thing here. We need to have appropriate levels of guilt. We need to have human levels of guilt. And I think a lot of the time people are left feeling disproportionate levels of guilt, like they've got to save the planet by themselves. And I think that's often because they see people around them not doing anything or because they are really strongly motivated because of care for animals quite often or other children around the world. Now, I don't want to shut down that girl. I think it's wonderful that people are feeling this. But you also have to kind of say to yourself, is this proportionate? Is this reasonable? Yeah. Am I trying to take on guilt for other people when actually I could just be calling them out and saying, I'm doing my bit. Why aren't you doing your bit? Because we have healthy guilt, which we can do something about, which would reduce our guilt. And we can have toxic guilt, where we're trying to feel the guilt on behalf of the whole neighborhood, which is really too much. Don't take that on. Just tell other people to take on their share of the guilt. We need individual and collective solutions to this. And I think when young people and children in particular are left feeling they can't have children, they can't fly, they can't do this, they can't do that. Now, I want to support their individual choices. I think it's really important that we do that. But I also worry if young children are making those decisions at this point in their lives. I think they're often doing that 
because they feel that's the only thing they can do to take action. That's the only way in which they can be powerful. Now, again, I want to support them in making individual choices, but I think we can also support them by saying, okay, what else can we do to help you feel empowered? What else can we do so that you're not left feeling that's the only thing we can do? Alongside that, make collective choices, family choices. So you can sit down as a family every week and say, right, what can we as a group do? What can we as a family do? What can we as a school do? What can we as a street do? And it can be as small as which biscuits do we buy or which milk do we choose to buy? Or it could be as big as how do we lobby government? How do we lobby for change collectively? How do we tackle air pollution collectively in our street or in our neighbourhood? But it's both. You don't want to be doing just one thing at a personal level or just taking action collectively. Otherwise, you're just going to get overwhelmed. Mm. The other thing to say about the consistency is change is not linear. And what we are looking for here around the climate crisis is it's not a simplistic change. It's transformational change. And what transformational change means in your introduction, it was great. Your introduction was brilliant. But you talked about powering up for change, you see. When it comes to the climate crisis, we also need to power down. We also (laughs) need to have quiet time. We also need to have time of reflection. We also need to accept that there are some things maybe we do feel powerless around. And we need to allow ourselves that introspection and that space and that silence and that hopelessness. Because it's by going through that hopelessness and feeling that grief and feeling that sadness that we will start to come out the other side. A young activist asked me a few years ago, she said, how do you build resilience? And I said, well, you fail. You get stuck. You fall over. And then you get up and you try again. And then you fail again. And then you get back up and you try again. And then you fail and you get stuck and you feel hopeless and you hate yourself and you hate the world. And then you get back up and you try again. Michael Jordan, the basketball player, is famous for saying that he missed 10,000 winning shots before he threw the one winning shot. And everyone remembers the one winning shot, but not the 10,000 missed shots. But you don't get the one winning shot unless you have the missed shots. So we build resilience by failing, by trying again, failing, trying again. And that's how we build the emotional intelligence and emotional resilience, which is sustainable. So rather than consistency, I'd want to talk about sustainable activism, sustainable action, which includes downtime. You need a night off, you know. We need mature defences around this, some of which are humour some of which are mindfulness, some of which are introspection. Go and sit on a tree in the woods or in your park or in your neighbourhood or in your garden and say, sometimes I feel hopeless and that's okay too. And now what should we do? So I'm looking for a both and solution Mm -hmm. rather than an either or. We don't want to split emotionally if we split into i've got to take action and save the planet or it's useless it's hopeless then we're in big trouble but if it's a both and approach i want to take action and sometimes i feel exhausted and hopeless yeah then we're 
developing an emotional maturity around this, which will sustain us through the ups and downs that we're going to be facing. This is so, so valuable. I feel like in so many ways I'm writing mm-hmm. notes. I hope that the listeners of the show will also write notes. And I think it just applies to so many areas of our life. Yeah. And you talked about, let's talk more about this individual action. I really like this individual action and contribution. And right at the top, right at the start of the show in the introduction, I mentioned that we know that 20% of CO2 comes from home energy. And that's one way to lower your carbon footprint. What tips have you picked up over the years when it comes to reducing our emissions? There is brilliant advice about how to reduce individual carbon footprints. When you think about heating, lighting, wise, mindful use of your energy, about walking more, about cycling more, about growing what you can, and thinking about how you heat your homes. But alongside that, we've got to recognize that all of those interval, all of those individual actions are brilliant, but should not be tackled with the, and then forgetting about collective large scale action. So I'm hesitating because I'm trying to think of the best way to say this. I asked a group of children. I'm going to I'm going to quote children rather than myself. My friends will be laughing that you've asked me for practical advice, really, because <laughs> it's not. I, I have a sense of achievement when I change a light bulb. Um, you know, we can't all be good at everything. Maybe that is the answer to this, right? But I, I spoke to a group of children about five years ago about... Yeah, what do you need from education? What's going to help us tackle the climate crisis? And I love their advice. So they said, right. They said, we need lessons in school on which plants to grow, Mm. naming trees, naming plants, you know, how to grow our own vegetables, how to build, you know, ecologically sound houses, how to build boats, how to sail boats. They said, but we also need lessons in how to have difficult conversations with our parents. And they said, and we need lessons in how to lobby governments. Mm. So they tackled it from a very personal, individual, practical perspective to the relational, the intergenerational relational perspective to the global perspective. And they were quite right that we need to be tackling all of these all at the same time, because there can be too much individualizing of this problem, which means people are carrying too much weight of guilt and shame and responsibility. I think anyone under the age of probably around 24 should have very little guilt around this because you've not been alive long enough to carry a big carbon footprint. Anyone over the age of 24 really needs to be paying attention to this. And there are statistics which can show us that it is often the younger generations that are feeling the worst impact of this. Mm. Climate change itself is now being classed as an adverse childhood experience, which is the equivalent of facing terrorism or war. What that means is it has a long-term mental health impact on children and young people, potentially for the whole of their lives because of the vulnerability of young people when it comes to climate change. 
The other thing to keep in mind is it's not just the immediate impact of this. So you could try and reassure yourself by saying, you know, well, the children here in the UK or the US or in other parts of Europe are safer at the moment. And yes, we need to worry about this, but it's really impacting more on the children elsewhere in the world. But that's not true. Yes, it has a direct physical impact on children around the world in a more immediate way in the Philippines, in Nigeria, in Bangladesh, in the Maldives, it does. Mm. But when it comes to the mental and emotional impact, the mental and emotional impact on children here in the UK is very similar to the mental and emotional impact on the children elsewhere around the world who are facing the immediate impact in Brazil and in Nigeria and India and the Philippines. So we are not protecting our children by not talking to them about it. In fact, we're doing the opposite. Children will take their lead from parents and if the parents don't talk about this, children will think they're not allowed to talk about it or they will worry about talking about it or they will worry about worrying their parents and then it will kind of build up and build up and build up under the surface and then it'll kind of break loose and then the child will only talk about it when they're distressed. We've got to normalise conversations about this. You wouldn't dream of not talking to your four-year-old about you know, mummy and mummy or mummy and daddy, you know, falling out or getting divorced. You wouldn't dream of not talking to a three-year-old about a member of your family getting sick because the three-year-old will know something is going on and then will worry even more that you're not talking to them about it. So children are not stupid. They're online. They're finding out about this and they know things are going on. So when we're not protecting them, by not talking to them. We're doing the opposite. We're scaring them more by not showing them how to talk about this. So we need to model to them. This is how we talk about this. This is part of our everyday reality now. And there is a lot we can do. Yeah. And there are things maybe that feel overwhelming, but then we need to pass those on to other people. Or we need to learn to tolerate things that maybe feel too big for us to cope with on our own. Maybe there's a nice lesson there in global empathy. So I talk about transformation of eco-anxiety to eco-empathy, eco-compassion, eco-community, eco-action, by transforming it into those more collective ways of approaching it. It gives us permission to feel it, but it also gives us somewhere to go with it. There's a really nice image that you can use to help regulate those emotions because this is really what we're talking about, is how to regulate difficult emotions. And you can use it as a visual image. Imagine yourself sitting on a rock surrounded by water and it's a mindfulness exercise. You can say, here I am sitting on my rock and I have feelings, but I am not my feelings. So you disidentify from your feelings and you imagine your feelings in the water around you. I have a body but I am not my body. I have thoughts, but I am not my thoughts. So you don't disallow your thoughts or your bodily sensations of anxiety or your stress or your tension or your feelings of frustration or anger. You allow all of them, but let them be in the water around you. Don't throw yourself off your rock into the water. Sit there, maybe put your feet in the water, engage with those emotions, feel them, but don't 
overwhelm yourself in them because if you do that then you're just going to be busy getting back up on your rock before you can take action I really really love that Caroline I'm so thank you so much for sharing all of this wonderful information with us honestly it's you know we've discussed so many things I'm writing my notes as I said about about empathy around including and involving people in the conversation and not not diminishing that and the reason I was so I suppose pressing on the how and like yeah give us these practical things um I suppose is because often I think when we talk about some of these themes like resilience like uh sustainable action instead of consistency often people will listen and they say that sounds great but how how do I do it so it's nice when we can give people something that they can say okay that doesn't feel too much that doesn't feel too big you're right I can have that conversation what can we do this week in our house or in our street or in our community to feel as though we're playing our part we're taking some action and hopefully alleviating some of those eco-anxiety and some of those feelings so Mm. so much so much in there I'm so so grateful and I'm conscious that I could talk to you for hours and hours but sadly (laughs) I wouldn't be able to fit it all in and I want to talk to you of course about the power hour because this is the Power Hour podcast. Sure. So, the Power Hour concept is very simple. It's all about the first hour of every single day. Now, I believe that it's just one hour. It's, you know, it can sound quite small to say, okay, what do you do in the morning? But actually for me, it's been incredibly impactful throughout many areas of my life. And I've heard from the listeners of this show that when they've taken action to make change in the first hour of their day, it's had a really positive impact on them as well. So I like to ask all of my guests, what time do you wake up in the morning and what do you typically do with the first hour of your day? Wow. It's interesting. I negotiate with my 18-month-old puppy, Wilfred. (laughs) And Wilfred, you know people can grow to be like their dogs or dogs can grow to be like their people. Yes. I have managed to educate Wilfred into sleeping in rather than hurling himself at me first thing in the morning and insisting on going for a walk, which is amazing and people can't believe I quite managed to do this, but I've got a lazy puppy, which is a delight as far as I'm concerned. So I managed to get out of bed and get downstairs and the minute I'm out of bed, he takes over the whole of the bed and stretches himself out upside down, legs in the air, and allows me to get downstairs and make a cup of tea with oat milk. And it allows me to go outside and get some mealworms out for the birds and look at the weather and look at the trees and see what's going on in the world. Because if I can get that first 15, 20 minutes or so just engaging with my immediate environment, then I feel settled in to my space. I'm very lucky where I live in the, my, house is bordering woods and it's full of birds there's usually a robin that comes and gives me a hard time if I don't remember to go and get bird food out early on and that sort of reminds me that I'm connected to this immediate environment Mm. and then like I said it's tea and then Wilfred gets up and we have a meander in the woods and see what's happening and I'm really lucky. I am so lucky. So I get to look at the small changes that are taking place in that immediate environment. So 
The yeah. garlic is growing. The wild garlic is growing at the moment. So I can go out there and think, oh, it's nearly pickable. And that kind of connects me to the kind of the small bit of the planet that I'm inhabiting. Before I launch myself into a world which is much more engaged in emotions and mental geography and conversations and, you know, it's quite busy and quite engaged and it's quite talking and feeling and thinking. But I do like to just go and be in the woods and say to myself, is there a woodpecker around? How's the garlic doing? What's happening? Are there any owls around? Because they can be around early morning. And that just makes everything feel okay, really. Yeah, yeah it sounds yeah. it sounds beautiful. And I think... I'm lucky. It's a really, yeah. yeah, it was a really nice thing for people to hear and maybe to start to try and incorporate some of that for themselves in their own morning. Because hearing you describe that, I was actually thinking I can relate to... I'm a morning runner. And often people will say, oh, so imp- you know, oh, I'm so impressed that you, you, know, you got up and did that run. How do you do it? But actually, as you just described for me, especially this time of the year, kind of coming out of the winter into the spring, I really start to notice, oh, okay, when I was running at this time, yeah. a few weeks ago, it was pitch black, dark. I had a little torch. And then now I'm noticing, oh, it's getting lighter. And little things change, obviously, whether it's the colours on the trees, whether it's just the temperature outside and how many layers I need versus, you know, whether I can feel my fingers when I get back. There's all these little things that start to change. And I really like that idea that actually in the mornings, just as you said, before the busyness of the world, before the busyness of our our daily tasks and our lives, going Mm. outside, observing change that you are, I suppose helpless too, but you're just witnessing and just observing that I think could be a really, really great place for people to start if they're not already, um, if they don't have anything like that in their morning routine and and maybe they can't do it every day, but I would encourage the listeners, if you're listening to this and thinking, gosh, that does sound like a good way to start the day, but I'm too busy, then maybe just start with one day every week where you have a nature power hour and you get outside and just start your day slowly. I would absolutely agree. And you can re- reassure yourself that that is contributing to taking action on the climate crisis because it's repairing our relationship with the natural world. And it's that disconnection with the natural world, which is partly why we're in this mess in the first place with biodiversity loss and not feeling ourselves to be part of nature. Mm-hmm. So you can reassure yourself that doing that, it might feel small, but it has a big ripple effect because this is about understanding and repairing our relationship with the natural world. We can't save ourselves if we don't save the nature around us. Mm. Well, what a lovely and powerful place to end. Thank you so much, Caroline. I knew this conversation was going to be absolutely fantastic. And to be honest, I have still got questions, still got thoughts. So um, maybe we'll get to connect again in the future. But for today, thank you so much come back anytime thank you thank you everyone for joining for today's special episode of power hour and big thank you to eon next for partnering with us remember you can find a whole range of audio tools that will help you rest and renew by searching power up for change on your podcasting app just take a listen to the mindfulness meditation that's in the feed right now for a taster So now you're all powered up and ready to tackle eco-anxiety. We're imagining that you feel like you can now take action. I know I'm certainly feeling a lot more just empowered and there's so much information that Caroline gave that I was listening, nodding my head and thinking, ah, 
that is just so powerful and so useful. So I hope that you're feeling the same. Remember, you can search hashtag power up for change or visit eonnext.com forward slash eco hyphen anxiety for more information. And I'll be back next week with another episode. See ya.